Heavenly Father, your word is good in all that it declares. It instructs our heart. It reveals and exposes our hearts for who we are. Yet it shows us your beauty and your majesty. It shows us our littleness, our insignificance and our desperate need for you. We thank you that you have provided the very thing that we most deeply need, the salvation of our souls, to deal with our uncleanness and our impurity caused by our sin, that through the shed blood of Christ we can be declared righteous in your sight. Thank you for your word which equips us that we might be ready for every good work. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And we thank you that the same spirit that inspired these words dwells within us and may your spirit work within us to challenge us and to transform us to become more like your son through our time together. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now there'll be a number of you who know that my mum in the last 12 months has had a number of emergency department admissions due to chest pains. The good news sides of things is that um, on most occasions it was nothing actually heart related but it's one of those things, if you have chest pains, you think this could be serious, I'm going to go to the hospital. Now in a recent conversation with my mum, um, a time before we had kids and we were living down in Victoria, I mentioned there was a time when I had chest pains and I went to an emergency department. And I remember it so vividly because anyone who knows me knows that I am not someone who goes to a doctor very frequently. I'm certainly not the sort of person who says, I need to go to an emergency department. So for more, when my wife hears me say, I think I might need to go to hospital, she starts to panic because she thinks, if Steve thinks he needs to go to hospital, he's going to die in the next 10 minutes. Good news was, no, it was nothing to do with my heart. They checked all that. It turns out that eating a whole packet of wasabi peas when you have stomach ulcers is not a good combination. But whenever we have chest pains, we consider it an urgent matter. If you've got an itchy foot, you know one says, oh, I'd better get to the hospital, my foot's itchy. Now, any of you doctors in there, if there's some serious metal conditions that have itchy feet, just forget I said that, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's a serious issue because we know that if there's even a chance that there's something wrong with our heart, that the consequences, the outcomes could be deadly serious. And as we look at these verses from Mark chapter 7, we're having a heart check with Jesus. Not a heart check of checking this organ within our body that pumps the blood around us, but the way in which the Bible uses the word heart and the culture in which they wrote to, of the very core of who we are. Our identity, our thoughts, our emotions, our passions, the things that drive us to do the things in which we do. And if there's something wrong with this heart, the consequences are even more serious than the heart organ that beats the blood around our body. What these two hearts have in, com- in common with one another is that everybody has a heart, both the organ and also something which drives our emotions, thoughts, our actions, all that we do. 
Another thing they have in common is that it is deadly serious if there's a problem with either of these two hearts. And the third thing they have in common, and there may be others, is that you can only address this problem while you're still alive. After you die, it's too late. For one thing which they are not similar, unlike the bodily organ, this heart which Jesus speaks of, there's no such thing as irreversible damage. Nor is the cure something that might be temporary until you die of something else. But it's perfect and eternal. And this morning we're going to focus on two things pertaining to our heart, that is our inner self that drives all of who we are. In the first 13 verses we're going to look at what you do does not define who you are. The things you do do not tell us what your heart is. But who you are defines what you do in verses 14 to 23. And then we're going to have our heart examination. So what you do does not define who you are. Now Mark chapter 7 seems like it's setting and starting a new scene. It doesn't have direct connection to chapter 6 which has gone beforehand. But the first parties that we're introduced to are two groups that are opposed to Jesus and the actions of his disciples. We have the Pharisees and the scribes. They were kind of like the religious elite of the time. You've got the Pharisees who are known for their, for their piety, for their religious observance, and the scribes, they were the ones who were known to have the, the academic understanding, the ones who, who studied the scriptures thoroughly. And both of these two groups were united in their oppositions to the actions of Jesus' disciples. And in particular, what the disciples didn't do with regards to washing their hands and ritual purity. So let's have a little look to see the differences between the practices of Jesus' disciples and that of the Pharisees, reading from verse 2. They, that is the Pharisees and scribes, saw that some of his, that's Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups, of pots, of copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So you see the contrast there, they're saying, here's the disciples, they don't ritually wash their hands before they eat. Now that wouldn't happen in our house. Our Kenzie, she is a hygiene dictator. She'd say, wash your hands. Clearly the disciples didn't have a COVID safe plan in place. Whereas the Pharisees on the other hand, yeah, they wash their hands every time before they eat. Not only before they eat, even if they go to the marketplace because who knows who could be there. You might brush shoulders with a Gentile while you're at the market. They wash the cups and all of their cooking vessels and even the places they sit on. So on first glance it might look like, wow, the disciples, 
I mean, sorry, the Pharisees are going that extra step in observing the things to honour God even more so than Jesus' own disciples. Looks like the disciples' practices are actually well below God's standards. And if we're honest, that is exactly what the Pharisees and scribes were thinking. They were looking at Jesus' disciples and thinking, you guys are not living up to God's standards. Why did they think this way? I mean, the question comes down to where do we find God's standards? Because if you were to search the Old Testament scriptures, call it the Old Testament scriptures, call it the law, call it the Torah, you will not find a single command to ritually wash your hands before you eat. Incidentally, you will not find a command for all those other things that the Pharisees were practising, like when they go to the marketplace, or when they're washing their cups and their pots and all of those things. Nowhere in the Scriptures. The only commands in the Old Testament Scriptures about when they had to ritually cleanse themselves was both for priests before certain rituals, if somebody touched a corpse or if somebody touched somebody who had a bodily discharge. They were the only times the scriptures said that people were required to ritually wash their hands. So if the Old Testament scriptures are God's standards, the disciples were not actually doing anything wrong. So why did the Pharisees and scribes and other Jews potentially also think the disciples were doing the wrong thing? because they had a much wider view of what they considered to be the places where you could find God's standards. You'll notice throughout this passage, you see repeated these terms of the traditions of the elders, as opposed to the things of God. You see, a lot of the Jewish elders concluded that the scriptures weren't comprehensive enough. They weren't detailed enough. They didn't cover all the scenarios in life. So they'd developed some oral traditions that they thought would kind of like build a fence around what God had already given in order that the people would not break any of God's commands. And there were lots of different oral traditions that were passed down from generation to generation. And by the end of the the second century, they actually wrote them down into a book called the Mishnah. I had a quick look up, I know I've got it digitally, but I had a quick look on the Quran website just to remind myself how big that book is. 880 pages of written records of oral traditions. So there was a lot of them. They were comprehensive. There were things about like if you have insects, because some insects were declared unclean, everyone needs to know the answer to the question of what do you do if you have one of those insects in your oven? It addresses that question and various other questions like it. And then today, the modern Jew has on top of that the Talmuds, which there's a Babylonian one and a Palestinian one, which are commentaries on the Mishnah. So you've got thousands of pages of these extra traditions and ideas. For the modern day Jew, they are the three things that people look to. They look to the Old Testament scriptures, But in terms of word count, there's probably more word count in these extra oral traditions and these Talmud documents. Some Jewish scholars say that about 25% of that Mishnah 
deals with ritual purity issues. Now, even though the Mishnah as a written document didn't exist in the first century, the traditions which it records did. And what the Pharisees and scribes are speaking of are existing traditions, oral traditions, that were in place. And their accusation against the disciples were, you guys are not upholding the traditions. Traditions aren't necessarily bad things. Traditions can be good things. There's nothing wrong with looking back to the past to see people have done things a particular way and determining whether or not they're useful or beneficial in some way. Even, to use a common example, even the format or the structure of our church services here at Eastgate is a tradition. As in we look at what the Bible says about the purpose of God's children gathering together and we try and think about how can we accommodate those principles and, and try and put that into practice. It's a tradition. But being a tradition, just like the washing of the Pharisees and the scribes, it is not an obligation. Stet and Stone say, this is the command of God, you must do a church service this way. When people start insisting on traditions being observed, that's when they go beyond just being a tradition and a conviction to them saying this is the command of God. And whenever you encounter people who start treating traditions or convictions as a command, every time you will find cold-hearted legalism. Sadly, I've been around in church circles long enough to know that you will find people in churches who are more deeply passionate about things pertaining to traditions than they are to some of the stated truths in God's word. Like you'll hear someone say, if this church ever sings something other than a hymn, I will go to another church that honours God and, and serves him faithfully. Musical style is a tradition. It's not a command. You might have good reasons to do a particular type of music, but it's not something everyone must or is obligated to do. Churches around the world, some of the most destructive people are people who are so set on tradition and who will do the nastiest things if their traditions are even questioned in any way whatsoever. Jesus has a biting rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, The people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commands of God and hold to the traditions of men. There's three key points Jesus makes and every one of them speaks of how far they have moved away from God. Firstly, he says you've got all of the external appearances of piety. You've got all doing the right things but your heart is far from God. Or in other words, you care passionately all about your actions but you care little about God. 
So in verse 7 he says, their worship is in vain. It's futile. It's worthless to come from a heart in just doing particular actions from a heart that is not for God. God is not impressed with your religious activity. He's not impressed if you turn up to church every single week and do all the good things, you're not involved in any sins, if your heart is far from him. Secondly, he rebukes them for treating as doctrine, that is, as God's standards, things that are merely the teachings of people. You see that language throughout the passage, the things that are from God and the things that are from man. And then even more harshly, he says, you leave or you reject what God has given, yet you passionately embrace what man has given. What comes from God, you refuse to listen to it. What comes from your traditions and your elders, you embrace it with all of your heart. How do you reckon the Pharisees and scribes like hearing that said about them? They would consider themselves to be the the most spiritual people, the most religious, the most pious. In fact, they've just been exerting their superiority by showing their godly practice over and against Jesus' own disciples. Yet Jesus has just said to them, you don't follow God. You follow man-made rules and you have no heart for God at all. How do you respond when someone makes a confronting accusation about you, whether it's true or not? One of the things we often do is say, prove it, give me one example, I bet you cannot. Well, they didn't have to ask that question But Jesus gave them one anyway. He said to them, you've got a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you, you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have had handed down. And many such things you do. So Jesus starts with what is from God, the command of God. You've been told to honour your mother and father. You need to look after them. Whoever reviles them or mistreats them will surely die. That's the command of God. He says, but you just... You've just chucked that aside. You've listened to a tradition, this thing called korban. Now, korban was a little bit like what we do today in a will where you you declare something that when you die, you will give it to someone. So if you declared something to be korban, you were saying that I am dedicating this to God. It's mine up until the day I die, but when I die it gets given to God and specifically gets given to the temple. It's kind of like a religious way of saying, I'm not giving or sharing any of my stuff 
And when it dies, I'm giving it to God. So it kind of, it's got a nice, cute, godly edge on it. You still had full rights. You could do with it whatever you like during your lifetime, but nobody else could because you could say, sorry, I've given it to God. So when this son and this example, his parents, if they needed any help, the son would say, sorry, Korban, I can't help you. I've given this to God. Can you imagine that? Your own parents got a a great sickness and they needed money to help out with some of the medical expenses and you said, no, I've committed to give this stuff to the church. I can't help you. And what Jesus says to them is, you have rejected the command of God to look after your parents and honour your parents. Instead, you've embraced a tradition that stops you from obeying the command of God. And it's just not a once-off occasion. He concludes in verse 13 by saying, and many such things that you do. He's saying, I could go on all day if you want to. If you want to get more examples of ways in which you take up your traditions and you set aside the word of God, I could, I've got all day if you want to listen to them. So here were the Pharisees and the scribes, esteemed by many to be godly people. Why? Because they seemed godly. They did religious things. They weren't involved in any particular vulgar sins. They understand and they teach the Bible. So people presume they surely they're doing this, they must have a godly heart. But despite all of their religious activity, Jesus, who knows the heart, says, Your heart is far from me. I'd hate to think that describes anybody that I know in those terms. Someone who does all the religious things most regular person at church, serves on all the rosters, involved in a community group, doesn't do, keeps away from sin at all cost, but their heart is far from God. Reminded of the words that God gave to Samuel regarding Saul, where he said, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees the Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The outward appearance is of no value at all. Your activities, your actions, if your heart is not right before God. And if you've got that type of heart problem, what you need to do is you need to address the heart problem, not the behaviour problem. The problem is the heart. The problem is who we are deep down, or to quote Matt Chandler, the heart of the problem is the problem of our heart. So let's look at reverse in verses 14 to 23, how who you are defines what you do. Now remember the Pharisees, they've been bringing complaints about Jesus' disciples, not washing off the external uncleanness. And Jesus makes a blanket statement to all of the crowd, calling them to him, and he says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. 
but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. Now, because the Pharisees and scribes are always antagonistic, I like the image of all the disciples giving them high fives and saying, yeah, good one, Jesus, you showed them, you got them. But they didn't get it either. And as is often the case, Jesus takes his disciples aside on this occasion inside a house to explain. He's already explained to his opponents the importance of having a heart that is right before God. Now as he's teaching his disciples, he gives them a simple biology lesson. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but into his stomach, and it's expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. He says, haven't you noticed? When you eat food, it goes in your mouth, in your stomach, in the toilet. It doesn't go in your heart. Now they're not thinking, oh, thanks for the correction, Jesus, I thought it went in my heart. And then, but No, they understood that he was saying that it does not affect the central core of who you are, the things that you eat the things that you put into your body. doesn't go anywhere near affecting that. Now Mark writing to a Gentile audience and because it was such a contentious issue of do we need to keep these things if we come and place a faith in Jesus puts an editorial note telling us that he declared all foods clean. So the Gentiles are like we can come to Jesus and have our bacon. It was a contentious issue, the issue of food and what was expected of Gentiles who would come to faith in Jesus because this has been the way it's been for, for centuries for them. It comes up in lots of the New Testament books. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, 2 Timothy and Acts. So it's not external things that can defile or make a person unclean before God. What does? If you don't become clean before God by what you do, it's by having a right heart. Because as the Proverbs say, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do is an expression of your heart, what you, what you desire, what you're passionate about. And Jesus affirms that statement. He says, from within... From your, the deep recesses of your heart come all sorts of evil thoughts. Then he lists off six particular actions. It's not the comprehensive list. Don't think that's the full list. And then six particular attitudes. All pretty clear-cut, self-explanatory. I'm just going to highlight one, not because it's more important. And I was reluctant to because I don't sometimes like overemphasis being placed on this one. Sexual immorality, Greek word porneia, not difficult to figure out what words stem from that in our English language. That term, it was a general broad term which meant any sexual immorality, any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It had a very broad range of meanings. It was like, Sexual morality was sex within the marriage covenant between a man and woman. Sexual immorality was anything else. Because so often you hear people say, Jesus didn't speak about homosexuality. He did. 
He didn't use that word. He defined marriage as between relationship between a man and a woman. Any other relationship, he used this term immorality. All of these things, not just that one, all of these things which Jesus has just mentioned stem from an evil heart and make a person unclean before God. Jesus came to deal with the problem of our wicked, evil hearts, of our sin, to make us clean and acceptable before God. By dealing with the problem of our sin, by paying the price, the penalty of our sin, by taking the death penalty upon himself on the cross, being raised to newness of life and giving newness of life to all who come to him in repentance and faith. Even when there was great controversy regarding Jews and Gentiles in Acts chapter 15, this is the way that Peter speaks of Gentiles, those who the Jews would have considered to be of greatly defiled hearts. It says, And he, Jesus, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with our bodies washed with pure water. Do not try to be accepted by God simply by doing religious things. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he says, in your own strength, it is impossible to please God. You cannot, by your activity in your strength, please God. No amount of going to church every week, trying to live, live a good life, can please God. But only through faith in the one who cleanses our hearts, who gives us a new heart, makes us a new creation, who by the blood of Christ shed on our behalf declares us right in his sight. So time for the self-examination. I think we've actually covered what we need to cover. But because heart issues are crucial, I just want to recap their two key points. Our two heart checks. The first one regarding legalism. When you're engaging with other brothers and sisters in Christ, what is it that you are most passionate talking about? What are the things that you most get fired up about, that you want to talk to other brothers and sisters in Christ about? My hope and prayer would be that this heart check reveals it to be something that has been declared as God's truth in his word. If the thing that you are most passionate and sharing about is your personal application of a biblical idea, then it might be time to question 
your heart. Let me give you some modern examples of what they could look like, all of which are good and valid ways to apply a biblical principle, but people will come from different perspectives. To get a COVID vaccine or not to get a COVID vaccine is not a biblical mandate. How you choose to educate your children, whether it be homeschool, public schooling. The method of parenting that you might choose to use. None of these are God's declared truth that rule your heart, that you expect others to fall in line with. They may be a good application of a biblical principle and there are good biblical principle reasons for doing all, both sides on all of those things I mentioned. But they are not the command of God and should never be treated as though they are. And especially if you find yourself, whether intentionally or not, weighing up in your heart or measuring others and judging their position before God around things such as those, then you need to stop. Beware lest your heart be led astray away from the declared truth of God's word to peripheral applications of principles. But at the same time, take comfort that there is a God who forgives all things. We all make mistakes in all areas. There is none that cannot be forgiven. And secondly, a check of this cleansed heart. I think one of the biggest mistakes sometimes we make in engaging with other people is we address and speak about their behaviours. The only problem is people don't like being criticised. And if you criticise someone about their behaviour, what they think is, well, when I'm around that person, I'm going to change my behaviour. And we can start to give the world the impression that it's what we do that makes us clean before God. Out of a pure heart, we should live pure and holy lives. We should want to live in accordance to God's truth. But that transformation should come about at a heart level, not at a behaviour modification level. Just like the Pharisees and scribes, they were externally incredibly moral. They were probably great examples for your kids of how to live. They wouldn't lead your kids astray. They were very religious. And Jesus says, your heart is far from me. Kevin DeYoung tells a story about an atheist who decided to do an experiment in a church. He decided he was going to attend a church for a year. During the time that he was there, he'd get fully involved, go to the Bible studies throughout the week. He'd make sure he didn't get do any of the sins that he had been doing, like the big, big name stuff that he had been involved with because it kind of blow his cover. And when he was asked about his experience at the church, he said he was shocked. At, towards the end of his first year there, he was asked if he would be put into a position of leadership in the church because he had such great conduct. He was a nice guy. He was, he was committed Yet he was an atheist. Had no interest in Jesus whatsoever. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, 
My desire for you is that your heart be transformed and out of the change and transformation of the heart would come transformation of character and behaviour in alignment with that heart change. If you haven't yet come to place your trust in Jesus, I would encourage you to look to him. Look to the one who cleanses the heart, who sets you free from defilement, who can, regardless of how unclean or sin-stained your past may be, who can wash you white as snow by the blood of Christ, declare you right in his sight. Or even if you are a follower of Jesus, and you find at a heart level things aren't quite right. Look to him. Be captivated in your affections for him. Look to seek and yearn after him that you might be transformed from the inner being. Not just modify the external. Heart failure is catastrophic. If your heart is far from Jesus in this life, it will eternally be far from Jesus. The one who provides all blessing and all goodness, which means an eternity gone, absent from anything which is good, of judgment, of eternal punishment. But that same impure, unclean heart, if brought to thee, heart specialist, Jesus Christ, can be washed white as snow, can abound in life and blessing eternal forevermore. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, every single one of us in this room, regardless of whether we have trust in you or not, we know that we have things in our heart that are not right before you. We thank you that for those who have placed their trust in you, that the ongoing things that may plague our heart from time to time are things we just simply bring before you in prayer and you are faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that if we have placed our trust in you, there is nothing that can plague our heart that can ever separate us from the love of God. They can never take us away from the promises that you have have declared to be true of us. And Lord, we thank you too that regardless of what others might say about us, regardless of what our past, our present, or even our future might look like, there is forgiveness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray as your children we would not merely just watch our external appearances in order to get the approval of our people who are around us, that we might be transformed in the inner man as we seek to know you and we long to be shaped and moulded, become more like you. Thank you, that is one of the very reasons why you chose us and called us to yourself in the first place. And we pray, we ask that you would do that within us that we would be transparent with one another to speak about the true nature of our heart and that we might support and encourage and build one another up in life and godliness. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.